0: This is In Conversation from Apple News. I'm Shamita Basu. Today, what does and doesn't work in the pursuit of happiness? I consider myself a generally happy person. But these past two years have really tested me. The pandemic, serious health issues in my family... Losing people that I loved. That's why earlier this year, I joined the millions of people who've signed up to take Yale's
1: happiness course. It's an online class taught by Dr. Lori Santos. I think we have this misconception that people are either happy or they're not. But the evidence really suggests that through your behaviors and your mindsets, there are lots of simple things you can do to feel better that we often don't even expect.
0: Over the course of 10 weeks you're assigned to do a bunch of practices that are aimed at boosting your mood and well-being. One week, you're supposed to savor one experience every day. It Could be a nice shower, it could be a cup of tea. The next week, you're supposed to perform seven acts of kindness. Another week, meditate for 10 minutes every day. Lori's class has become so popular. She now also hosts a podcast called The Happiness Lab, which covers many of the same topics as her course. When I invited Lori to come on this show, I felt like I needed to admit something to her. I really enjoyed the course. I got several weeks into it, but I did not finish it. Things just got hard in my life, and I was really struggling to make time for my happiness. So I told myself I will come back to the course when I'm ready. I finally had the chance to complete a really crucial assignment just this past week, while I was visiting family in India,
2: oh, Man, it's God. So, beautiful. Is so beautiful. It's so, it beautiful. so beautiful. Thank you so much.
0: I'll come back to that moment a little later. But first, I started my conversation with Lori, talking about how most of us want to be happier than we are now, but the stuff that we think will make us happier generally
1: doesn't do it. Happiness and seeking happiness is hard, in part because we have some really crappy intuitions when it comes to the kinds of things that will make us happier. I think if you think, what could you do to feel happier? You know, our answer often involves changing our circumstances, right? Like, I need to get rich to be happier. I need to—I'll be happy when. Like, I'll be happy when I get that relationship or that new job or that new promotion, After you're earning a middle-class income, earning more money doesn't make you much happier. You know, there's evidence that if you're earning around $75,000 just to pick a number that's been studied in the literature, doubling or even quintupling your income won't actually affect your happiness at all. It won't decrease your stress. It won't increase your positive emotion. It just, like, doesn't have the effect we think. We think happiness is about changing what's going on in our lives. Now, if your circumstances are, you know, like direly terrible or you're dealing with traumatic circumstances, obviously changing those will impact your happiness. But for most of the people listening to this podcast, most of the circumstantial changes you could make aren't going to affect your happiness that much.
0: Mm -hmm. I thought maybe we could back up a
1: little bit and talk about
0: how you became the expert teaching a college course about happiness like what was your what was your journey to teaching this course
1: yeah, well, I've been, you know, a psychologist, it seems like forever. You know, I've been teaching at Yale uh, in the psychology department for over a decade. But in just the last couple of years, I took on a new role on campus. I became one of Yale's heads of college. So when I first signed on to the role, I was seeing this college student mental health crisis up close and personal with so mm-hmm. many of my students reporting that they were feeling depressed or anxious or having panic attacks, even experiencing suicidality. You know, I get really worried, you know, is this something about Yale or something about the Ivy League? But it turns out that this, this is a national trend. Like right now, if you look at national statistics, what you find is that more than 40% of college students report being too depressed to function most days, um, more than 60% wow. experience overwhelming anxiety, and more than one in 10 has seriously considered suicide in the mm-hmm. last year, such that they've even made a plan for suicide, right? And so these numbers are striking. They were really scary when I learned about them, but they also really compelled me to figure out how to do something about it, right? You know, as a professor, I like to think I'm teaching my students in the classroom, but, you know, Yale's not meeting its educational mission if, you know, 40% of students are too depressed to function most days and 60% are overwhelmed by anxiety, so they can't do anything. And so, the class in my kind of retraining in this field of positive psychology was an attempt to figure out, okay, what does my field have to say about practical strategies we can use to deal with this, practical strategies we can use to feel better? And as I did this deep dive into this work, I realized There are a surprising number of evidence-based strategies that we can use. Um, What I didn't expect was just how viral the class would go. The first time I taught the class, which was in 2018, a quarter of the entire Yale student body enrolled in the class. So over a thousand students. We had no classrooms on campus that could fit all these people. So we had to teach the class in a concert hall. Uh, It was all all really surreal. I thought maybe we could talk about at the very beginning
0: of the course, you have participants take this character strengths survey where you get to learn about all these positive parts about your personality that that really impact the way that you you feel and you think and you operate and that you think about yourself. I really enjoyed doing this exercise. It was very early on in the course, and I just feel like it really sort of set the tempo for me on what to expect out of the rest of the course. Can you talk a little bit about why you asked people to take this survey, what you mean for them to take out of it?
1: Yeah, so the survey you're talking about is a survey of people's character strengths. And character strengths are these just kind of universal values and good traits that we see across all kinds of cultures, people vary in them. So you know I don't know the list, there's like 24 total, but they'd be things like, you know, humor, a love of learning, bravery, you know, perseverance, um, you know, just just kind of like traits that you're like, oh, yeah, if you did that, you'd kind of feel good. The reason the character strengths test is so important, though, is that what the goal of it is, is to kind of give you a sense of which of those strengths really resonate with you the most. And the work of researchers like Marty Seligman and his colleagues has shown that people don't just have these character strengths. They have some that are particular to them. He calls them signature strengths. Mm -hmm. And what he finds is that when you're using your own signature strengths, like if you're really into humor and you're engaging in some, you know, practice or activity that allows you to experience humor, if you're really kind of brave and feel like that's important to you when you're doing things that feel courageous, you wind up feeling happier. And there's lots of evidence, for example, that people who execute their signature strengths at work wind up loving their job more. They're more likely to see their job as a calling. We forget that there are things that resonate with us that we can take action on that allow us to feel better.
0: Yeah, wow, that, that really makes sense for me. Some of my top strengths turned out to be honesty, fairness, leadership, bravery. All of the descriptions were really making me think about journalism and how I ended up in journalism and um and how much I speak to my every day of what I get to do at work, which is so, so satisfying. But I also kind of made an unspoken rule for myself through the course that I wasn't going to use any work-related tasks to accomplish or use check marks as I went along. Because I was like, well, just because I'm doing those things at work doesn't mean I shouldn't be pursuing them outside of my work. Work can't be the source of all those happiness, character-strengthening things that I'm looking for.
1: I love, I love that insight because, you know, I think one— of the many things we get wrong in terms of our happiness, I think we're not that great at finding good ways to spend our leisure time, which is something Mm -hmm. I talk a lot about in the course, but also these days on my podcast. You know, I think, you know, first of all, we don't get enough leisure time. You know, there's so much evidence that we're more time famished than you might expect. We're kind of starving for time, and this has really negative consequences for our well-being. But when we finally do get some free time, I think in part because we're exhausted, we often pick activities that might feel maybe relaxing is like the positive way to think about them like I plop down and you know watch some Netflix or something but they're often not like engaging or challenging or even fun right if you think back to like you know what's the most fun you've had recently it probably wouldn't be like plop down watching tv or like scrolling through the internet but when we have free time we, we often spend a disproportionate amount of it doing that and so I think one one reason I loved what you said about you know try to get these strengths in not at work but in your leisure time is like we're wasting the good leisure time we have because we, there's like an opportunity cost that you know we're spending it on relaxing things, but we could be spending it on challenging things, things that really activate our strength. And, and often we're not doing that. So I've, I've gotten out my, my workbook from the course, which
0: is titled The Rewirement Workbook. I guess I was thinking about this as I was going through the course, and there's recommended activities, rewirements, right, for every week, exercise, get enough sleep, meditate, keep a gratitude journal every day. I'm curious to know which of these actions are sort of universal, I guess, in terms of their proven happiness impact, and which of them might be more personal or individualized. I'm curious if you've ever heard someone say, you know, that didn't really do it for me. That week didn't seem like it affected my happiness.
1: Yeah, like, well, with all interventions, you know, there's going to be some individual differences. Like, we are not, like, a uniform set of humans walking around the planet. Um, But the specific rewirements we've picked are ones that have been vetted pretty well cross-culturally, right? Like, for example, take social connection. We know that pretty much anywhere you go in the world, people who are more socially connected, people who interact and, and intentionally spend time with their friends and family members, they wind up happier. Same thing with things like random acts of kindness. We know if you look cross-culturally in every country that's been studied, what you find is there seems to be a pretty strong correlation between, for example, donating money to charity and overall scores on well-being. We see this in Gallup polling and these big kind of worldwide well-being measures. That said, there's still going to be individual differences. Um, Sonya Lubomirsky, who's a, a very famous happiness expert who I talk with a lot on the podcast and also, you know, review her work in the class. You know, she's kind of just not that into gratitude, right? You know, which, which is like just, you know, a mindset shift that we know has huge effects on happiness. She's like, I kind of find it hokey. So I focus on other things. And, and that's okay. I mean, one of the goals of the class is to take an evidence-based approach. You should try it for yourself. You know, do the experiment on yourself, see what works. And, you know, non-judgmentally, you know, know, use more of the stuff that seems to be going well for you. And that's fine if not all of the practices work.
0: Are there any of these practices that you yourself found really hard to make part of a regular practice?
1: Oh, so many of them. I mean, I think my natural inclination is not necessarily to be happy as a human. I think my DNA is like pushes me towards all kinds. Oh, so many bad strategies. Yeah people often like you know that i'm honest in my podcast about how bad my intuitions are and i'm like well i have to be honest because like my intuitions are like super bad you know both in terms of what i prioritize in terms of how i spend my time both in terms of the stuff i'm motivated towards the natural thinking patterns i fall into i've had to work really hard to engage self compassion um, rather than beat myself up like some mean drill sergeant you know so i I think i think one of the reasons i'm a good ambassador for this stuff is i struggle with all of these things Mm -hmm. (laughs) like maybe Mm maybe Maybe more than most people. So yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, for me, one of the things that's been most critical for my own happiness, but I find really hard, is remembering the importance of these lessons about time famine. And so Mm. I've been really trying to be very careful about taking my own advice to say no to things, um, to make sure I have time for leisure, to, to mindfully notice, is this too much? Um, you know, even in the next year, I'm actually planning to take some time off from my duties at Yale and my duties as a head of college just to kind of have a little bit of a break, you know, address, you know, some creeping burnout that I've noticed and take some time off. And I definitely wouldn't have done that, you know, two years ago before I was teaching some of mm. these things. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell
0: you, and I'll just be very honest with you. I started taking the course this year. It's probably around January. And I really enjoyed it. I have to say, my mom sent this to me a couple of years ago. Hey, you should enroll in this Coursera Yale course on happiness. And at the time, I think I was a political reporter and I was just like, I'm too busy. I have too much going on. I can't think. What is this happiness link my mom sent me? And I totally ignored it. So Mm -hmm. sorry, mom, for ignoring it at first. (laughs) But I eventually did come around to it. And then, frankly, life just threw me some hard stuff and I just didn't have the willpower or the motivation to pursue my own happiness and really focus some time on it. So what's your advice for people who feel like they're not able to prioritize their happiness at the moment?
1: Well, I think, you know, there's two pieces of advice there, right? I mean, you know, building off your story. You know, maybe it was right to hit pause on my class and come back to it when you felt a little bit more open that doesn't mean not to prioritize any aspects of your well-being but it might be that that you know might not be the way to do it um, the other thing that I think that your story brings up is this idea that there are lots of different ways to prioritize our well-being right engage self-compassion right like what advice would you give if you were a really good friend who had that same set of constraints you probably wouldn't tell your friend like well you know get it together and finish that Yale class because what a loser are you? You're like, like, you tell your friend, like, no, do something nice, but, like, don't kill yourself over it. Like, figure out what fits. Like, it's okay. That kind of attitude is, is self-kindness. That's engaging self-compassion. And we need to kind of—we do that so naturally for our friends, but we need to apply that sort of attitude to ourselves. The week when I fell
0: off the bandwagon was a hard assignment. Write a letter of gratitude to someone and deliver it in person— I knew who I wanted to write my letter to. I wanted to write to Mona and Nona, my aunts in Delhi. I call them my aunts, my buwas, even though technically they aren't family. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. The short version is, their family lived next door to my dad's family. The kids all grew up together, and the parents were friends. But in time, their parents died, my dad and his brothers left India, And who was left? My grandmother and these girls from next door, Mona and Nona. For decades, they've been a huge part of my grandmother's life. They really are some of the loveliest, happiest people that I know.
2: Oh my God, you have a mango drawer.
0: My grandmother died last fall. And as much as life prepares you to lose your grandparents, I'll admit I've really been feeling her absence in these past few months. That's why it's been especially soothing to be here in Delhi right now, in the hot, sticky heart of mango season, to finally give this letter to these two special people who knew my grandmother best. (laughs) Muna, you read it
2: out. To my buas. Sweet. (laughs) I've been taking this really interesting online course, one that millions of people have enrolled in all over the world. It's called the science of well-being.
0: I told them how much it meant to me as a grandchild living far away to know that my grandmother had such loving people around her and how lucky I am to count them in my family.
2: It may be funny to, to be thanked for doing what comes so naturally to you, from being good to the people you love and making a warm and affectionate presence felt. But sometimes it's nice to say the things that don't have to be said and the truth is, I feel so grateful
0: for you, too. You. I described how, when I think of my love for them, my mind often goes back years ago to the very first time they introduced me to Pan. It's like an after-dinner digestive, a bunch of seeds carefully folded in a leaf. That day had all of the hallmarks of a perfect Mona Nona day. And what does that That
2: energetic... Uh, hum of doing something playful and (laughs) mischievous. the waves of laughter and the feeling of being totally comfortable and fundamentally understood by the people you are with, real happiness gosh I love you too truly and deeply thank you for being exactly who you are a big big hug and kiss Shumita oh Shumita, it's so beautiful it's so beautiful thank you so much Thank you so much. He really, really loved me. I love you
0: so much, too. Both of you. This exercise of not only writing a letter of gratitude, but then delivering it in person, it was even more cathartic than I expected. It unearthed these kind, appreciative thoughts that I'd been meaning to express, but I just hadn't formalized. And Lori told me this is something that she hears often from her students, that the exercises
1: really do stick with them. So I can say anecdotally that the class really affects my students. I get so many emails both immediately after the class and even years later about how the class has positively affected the students. It's not like you go from majorly depressed to like, you know, incredibly, you know, like joyful all the time. But it means you could go from, like, you know, a 5 to, you know, a 6.25 or, you know, a 6 to a 7. And and that matters in the real world. You know, it matters to kind of have these strategies that you use over time.
0: How do you test a person's happiness level at any given point?
1: Yeah. Well, I would love to have like a little happiness thermometer that we like stick in someone's mouth and you get like 98.6 happiness. <laughs> you know, that, that's not how happiness works. The standard measure in our field and a measure that I should know is like really well validated, even if it might not seem like that, is a self-report. You know, I just give you a survey of, you know, tell me about your positive emotions. Tell me about your negative emotions. Tell me how satisfied you are with your life. And again, while this might seem like a you know a silly internet quiz, you know, feel like, tell me all the things about being a Leo, you know, astrological sign or something, (laughs) they're not, right? I mean, these are well-validated self-report measures that we have tons of psychometrics to show that the answers that you give on this would be, you know, correlated with if I were to pull, you know, your social media feed or the text from your journals and do like a machine learning analysis of the positive emotional words you use, or if I did detailed interviews with your friends and family members, these kinds of answers would match. And so we know these self-report surveys are, are tapping into some real metric. Hmm. Um, but again, I, you know, if there's any listeners out there in tech, like who want to make the happiness thermometer, I would definitely pay a lot of money for that. <laughs> It'd be great I to have one. I would invest in that. Yeah. Lori's class at Yale
0: is designed for young college-aged people. But she says these practices are not age-specific. Happiness is something that we can work at achieving at any age
1: which is something that she sees in the online version of this course. We get lots of learners who are in their 70s and 80s. I just recently got a handwritten letter from a learner in her 90s who is taking the class. And what I found surprising is like, yeah, some of the examples are geared towards college students or younger individuals, but, but what we find is that a lot of people from many, many ages are taking the insights and applying them in their own lives. You know, one of the things we know about happiness and aging is that at least historically, happiness tends to have an inverted you function. So you're happiest when you're young and in your 20s, then you kind of go into the real world, your happiness sort of dips into middle age. And then, you know, just around the time your kids, you know, leave home, you know, around the time of retirement, happiness starts to sweep back up again. So you get to mm-hmm. the other side of that inverted you mm-hmm. um, with, you know, something we don't expect which is more aged individuals, tend to be happier. That's the scope of happiness we see across different ages. But the reason that middle age tends to be a less happy place is that all these strategies we've talked about are the kinds of things that go away in middle age. You know, we're not prioritizing our friendships and our social connections. We're not taking time to be time affluent. We're often much busier. You know, like things like exercise and sleep, they go by the wayside when you're in your like busy middle age life and career Mm. stuff. So... Mm. I think, you know, if we, any age range, if you follow some of the practices we've talked about, the evidence suggests that you will wind up improving your happiness.
0: Every year, the World Happiness Report ranks how people evaluate their own happiness in more than 150 countries. The U.S. regularly ranks outside of the top 10 on that list. Meanwhile, Finland has ranked in the number one spot for the past five years in a row, Other countries in the top 10 this year include Denmark, Iceland, Switzerland, and Luxembourg. So I asked Lori, what are these countries getting right about happiness? What are they doing to support and encourage happiness on a national level?
1: It tends to be both cultural practices and structures within a society that tend to promote the sorts of behaviors that we've been talking about. You know, so take social connection. That's just easier, you know, like in Scandinavian countries, for example, where there are social spaces outside where you can gather, you know, work ends at 5 p.m. so people can get together, you know, they're culturally sanctioned, you know, social groups that hang out and like clubs and sports teams and things like that, you know, much more so than you see in the United States. You know, there are cultural practices that are based on savoring and mindfulness. You know, think of, of practices like Huga again in Scandinavian countries, where even in the you know the depths of winter, you're gonna sit there and savor a candle or like some delicious pastry where you're really not just eating something delicious, but really present with it in a different way. And mm. so I think you know, my read on what makes different cultures happier are they have cultural practices and structures, you know, even sometimes physical structures um, within countries that allow individuals to engage in these practices better. Um, one of my favorite examples of this comes from a lot of religious practices. Um, you know, I often get asked the question, are religious individuals happier? And the answer is, is yes, but with a caveat, it's not individuals with strong religious beliefs that are happier, you know, a belief in God or something like that. It's individuals who engage in religious services and practices, you know, so mm. the Catholic who goes to church and, and donates at the, you know, annual Catholic charity, you know, the Buddhists who really commits to spending time meditating. Um, You know, the Jewish individual who, you know, practices like Shiva, where they're kind of helping out other folks or or like really obeys the Sabbath, where they take time off once a week. Like it's these practices often that map onto the habits, you know, mindsets and behaviors that we know improve happiness. Those are what's kind of contributing to religious individuals feeling happier.
0: So whenever I see America ranking so low on these kinds of happiness lists, it just makes me wonder, like, what are Americans doing wrong? What are we getting wrong when we think about happiness?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think one reason we're often shocked to see America so low on the list is that overall, you know, compared to a lot of the other countries that are higher than us, we, we tend to be a pretty wealthy country. But in addition to our wealth, we're also a very unequally wealthy country. And inequality across countries seems to really map onto happiness in a negative way. So the more unequal a country is, the less happy they're on average going to be. But I think if you think about how much the United States culturally prioritizes some of the things we've been talking about, like... Not so much, you know, exercise relative to a country that's, you know, biking like Scandinavia, like not so much, you know, social connection, right? These kinds of practices where these things matter a lot. I think in more rural communities, these things are more prioritized than they often are in big cities. You know, time off, right? Americans are notorious for not taking their vacations. Again, relative to others, similarly wealthy countries, Americans, yeah. like leave vacation hours on the table that they simply just don't take. And so I think culturally, the United States is often prioritized. Prioritizing a lot of from the evidence-based perspective we would say is the wrong kind of stuff to feel happier we're really consumerist society we like to buy stuff and buying stuff just doesn't increase happiness in the way that we expect so how can we force or encourage some kind of culture shift in
0: america i think that's really the big question right we're in this country we're in this culture we're swimming in it it's making certain demands of us and as much as we can cultivate our own good practices as individuals what can we be doing or encouraging on a societal level?
1: Yeah, well, I think we all wind up controlling a lot more of like simple local cultures than we think. You know, many people are involved in work organizations or church organizations or friend groups or family structures, right? Like what can you do in those tinier structural units to embody some of these practices. You know, maybe you need to bring back, you know, saying gratitude before a meal in your family or making sure phones get put away so people are present or, you know, forced social time. I think, you know, one thing that the pandemic and having the kids at home taught us, you know, they're like, all been challenging things about that, but a lot of families will self-report like, wow, we had more family time and that actually felt good, right? Yeah. You know, I want to yeah. keep going with that, right? So I think in these local structural units, we can sort of make some of these direct changes. You know, that's easier than you know doing that at the countrywide level. But all of us are voting, and we could vote for practices that allow us to engage in these things, you know, public parks and social spaces, you know, reductions on the amount of time that people are working. In the UK right now, they're really trying out with more seriousness a four-day work week. Um, as we speak, this is kind of getting put into action, you know, what yeah, would that look right. like, you know, in the United States? Um, and, you know, taking seriously that, you know, everybody has the privilege to kind of engage with this stuff. You know, the inequality we experience in the U.S. is often thought about in terms terms of inequality in wealth and income, which obviously is a big issue. But there's lots of evidence from people like Ashley Willins that inequalities in wealth wind up also being strong inequalities in terms of people's time famine, that low-income individuals tend to be really time famished. And in her hand, some of the evidence suggests that it's really the time famine that's doing a real hit on the well-being of low-income individuals, maybe even more so than the wealth famine, right? So finding ways to get people a little bit more time and to build that into our societal structures, I think, could have a huge effect on people's overall well-being.
0: Laurie, thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. No, this was super fun. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And thanks to my buas in Delhi for the mangoes and for everything else. Ah, oh, nothing like a little cry before dinner. Yeah, <laughs> Just a little, a good little cry. I've shared a few pictures of my trip to India to see Mona and Nona on Twitter. You can follow me at Shubasu, that's at S-H-U-B-A-S-U. And check out Laurie Santos's podcast, The Happiness Lab, on Apple Podcasts. You can find a link to that on our show notes page.